Welcome to Retirementals, a podcast that dives headfirst into the issues facing the financial sector at the intersection of investment, technology and financial advice. Hosted by Abraham Oksanya, you can expect raw honesty, critical analysis and energetic interviews. Here is your host, Abraham Okasanya. Hello, 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 and welcome to Retirementals. I'm Abraham Okasanya, and thank you all for joining us for this um, addiction of the podcast. Um, as many of you know, I am a huge, big advocate of index investing, and it seems like um, us index investors are... Uh, being blamed for everything uh, right now. I don't know, many of you might have seen, um, you know, a a Twitter debate, explosion, call it that. Um, you know, even Elon Musk get, got involved in criticizing in index funds. So basically, we're being blamed for the current market volatility. Uh, but it seems that's not the only thing we're being blamed for. We're also being blamed, um, you know, for lack of, um, you know, acceleration, you know, in the, um, you know, movement towards, um, you know, a, a, a low carbon world. You know, decarbonization is what it's called. And so, um, and so every time I see a criticism about um, index investing, um, you know, unlike uh, unlike many of my index uh, investing advocates, I actually do read these criticisms and take them serious. But then the little Jack Bogle inside of me, uh, you know, arises to fight. And so uh, today I am really excited uh, to have on this show uh, Chris Hayes, who is... Um, a senior data analyst at the think tank Commonwealth and the co-author of a report, uh, the the passive revolution. Uh, Chris, welcome to Retirementals. Hi there. Thank you for having me. So thank you for making the time to um, you know to 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 join the show. So you've recently written a report uh, criticizing index funds. Uh, you know, but before and we're going to dive into into all of that. But before we do, uh, give our audience a little bit of an introduction about about yourself and about Commonwealth. Um, sure. So I guess. I'm a slightly unusual guest for you to have in that I'm not from the finance uh, profession at all. Uh, I work for a think tank. We're a public policy think tank. We do research into policy questions. Um, and as, so that sort of straddles the gap between academia, politics and journalism uh, or sits somewhere in between them. Um, so we're really approaching the question of uh, passive investment from a more system level uh perspective rather than how good is it for investors specifically, I guess. Um, Commonwealth in particular is um, a think tank that focuses on questions of ownership. Um, so where a lot of other policy analysts might look at um, various social or economic problems and see how you can tinker around the margins to say, let's uh, have some tax and spend here and there that redirects expenditure flows into different areas. We look at ownership as the fundamental thing that really um, structures the policy space um, and determines what the incentives are for policymakers and also for private actors within the economy. And then we try and um, think of more democratic models of ownership uh, in key strategic sectors that might be a way of short-circuiting a lot of policy trade-offs. Um, 
I'm also relatively new to that space as well, although I'm, my background is in economics uh, academically. Um, and I've spent throughout my career, I've spent uh, quite a few years in the private sector as, uh, as a business analyst uh, or a media analyst, rather, um, doing analyzing industry trends and business uh, strategies in the technology, media and telecom sectors. Um, and then more recently, I've bounced around a few um, public policy think tanks um, like the OECD and the Institute for the Future of Work before landing here at Commonwealth, um, uh, where I've been working on a, a broader project uh, analyzing asset manager capitalism, uh, to use the term of uh, the political economist Benjamin Brown. Um, and this is just one report that we've been doing in that broader project uh, about right. investing. Good stuff. So, so let's let's dive into your report then. What led to this? You know, give us a little bit of background um, on, you know, why write this report. What is it that you are trying to accomplish? Um, well, basically, um, we've been inspired by. Um, a growing literature in um, uh, ac academic literature in the field of political economy um, that looks at the evolution of capitalism through different phases um, that hinge on what the structure of ownership is um, and how shareholders are configured and how they relate to management and to workers. Um, and more recently, this has been pioneered by, um, as I just mentioned, uh, a German political economist called Benjamin Brown. Um, and he's basically identified the rise of these huge um, American asset management giants um, and said that this isn't just a normal case of concentration or uh, it's not just a market power issue. This is um, this is really a new era, um, uh, a, a new corporate governance regime and a new economic regime, given uh, as a result of the strength of these investors, what their interests are and um, the power that they exert over not just the firms within their portfolio, but um, the firms in their portfolio relative to each other. Um, and passive investing has obviously been um, the main motor behind this growth of these firms. So BlackRock, Vanguard and State Street, who are, who are the big three um, of passive, passive investment, they've reached the level of concentration they have thanks to them being the pioneers, um, mainly of passive investment. Um, and then we're sort of building up what we're building on what the implications of that are for such things as the climate transition and for corporate governance more generally. So, so let's just talk a little bit about the rise of, um, you know, you call it passive fund, I call it index fund, um, mm -hmm. you know, in, in the UK, you know, as it stands, um, the point you made in your paper is that only about a fifth of UK PLC is owned, uh, you know, by, by index fund and not just UK index fund in the paper, mm -hmm. you looked at index funds globally. So let talk, talk a little bit about how, you know, quickly or slowly that rise has been over the last couple of years. Um, so the UK has been slightly behind the US in terms of the development of passive investing partly because um a lot of these funds are american um and also u.s equities are the main uh, the most canonical equity that these funds would be investing in anyway but um in the uk it's quickly catching up it hasn't overtaken active investment like it has there but it's um it's making a lot of headway uh, it particularly picked up after the f financial crisis which was partly a result of um 
of investment banks being hit by deregula- uh, being hit by new regulations that the asset managers were exempt from. It's also a result of asset appreciation in the wake of like QE that was taken in response to the financial crisis. Um, and more recently, it's really gone into overdrive in the UK uh, since about 2017 or so. I'm not entirely sure what the inciting incident for that was, uh, but that's where you really see an uptick um, in passive fund ownership of the FTSE all share. But still, you know, majority of the assets is in the hands of active investors, right? And so why then, how then have you come to this conclusion, which is the case you made in the paper, that, um, you know, index investors uh, risk being oldest, I think you call it, holders of last results or owners of last results for, um, you know, this high uh, carbon intensity type companies. Mm-hmm. Oil and gas was your you know, particular example there. I don't see how you came to that conclusion. Um, okay, so I guess we can split that up into the question of... Um... What are the characteristics of passive investment more generally? And also then the question of how quickly is it catching up with active? Um, yeah, as you say, active is still is still larger. Um, but it is like it is a, it is getting closer and closer um, in terms of the relative ownership stakes. And nowhere is that catch up more developed um, than in the fossil fuel sector. So we can look at it on an industry by industry basis. And basically, um, yeah, they're, they're closest to overtaking active funds in the fossil fuel sector because active funds have taken the discrete decision to start divesting. So their, their ownership stake relative to market cap has been falling while you haven't seen any such fall um, among passive firms. Um, they've been continuing to load up on fossil fuel firms in exactly the same way as they would continue to load up uh, in firms from other other industries. Perhaps one of the things also worth um, mentioning is that uh, from a corporate governance perspective, where it comes to like, uh, you know, getting on the phone to managers and saying, we, the shareholder, um, don't like this, or we do like this, um, or when it comes to voting in AGMs, um, because passive funds are characterized by a logic rather than the judgment of an individual manager, it means that they essentially act in concert. They like constitute this like homogenous, monolithic voting block within each companies. Um, whereas active managers tend to show a lot more um, variation in their voting records, and there there are like academic papers that show this. Um, so even if they're not uh, necessarily as large as the active funds in the UK yet, they may be. Um, have an outsized influence on corporate governance decisions, nonetheless. So I want to dissect that into two parts. This this point you made about the proportion that active, uh, you know, versus index fund hold in companies, well, in the market generally. So in the paper, you know, you again, correct me if I am wrong, um, is that you looked at the FTSE all share um, and you came to the conclusion that, um, you know, about 12% of the FTSE all share is owned 
by index funds. This is not just UK index funds. This is index funds uh, globally. And, and uh, tw twice that amount, 23% is owned by, um, you know, active mutual funds. Correct? Yeah. So then who's holding the rest two thirds of these companies? Um, I mean, that's a really good question. Um, a lot of this data is because we basically we use the Thomson Reuters Refinitiv database um, to get a lot of this ownership data. Um, and it only lists um, the ownership stakes of listed funds from their LIPA database. Uh, so it includes investment funds, pension funds, hedge funds, um, ETFs, mutuals, closed ended. Um, it doesn't include large stakeholdings by wealthy individuals. Um, and it doesn't include um, uh, block holdings by other corporations. So there is, yeah, this there there is a big gap in our um, in our data visibility, and also and that is relevant to our conclusions as well because um, it also includes uh, the, the gap that we're not capturing also includes private equity, um, and they have, as we know, have been moving into the oil and gas space uh, very enthusiastically in the last ten years. Um, so we're not we're not trying to blame passive investors for everything, um, but we're saying given that it is a growing um, it is a growing field, then attention therefore needs to be paid to it. Um, and here's what we know about its incentive structure and reasons to be cautious um, and think about that from a policy. Now a word from our sponsor, Nikki Heating Jones is the managing director and the chief investment officer at. Betafolio, the high-tech, low-cost, discretionary model portfolio manager. Typical model portfolio service costs about 36 basis points. That's in addition to the funds, the platform, you know, the advice fees. Tell us a bit about Betafolio's view and approach on fees. Well, I don't think anyone that knows us already, Abraham, would be surprised to hear me say that in a nutshell, NPS fees are too high. Um, if you include the fund charges and the platform fee that you already talked about, we get close to 1%, I think, on average for a lot of retail clients. And that's before they start paying for the financial plan, which is the part of the service that will ultimately add the most value for them in their advisor relationship and experience. Um, so, I mean, my view on fees and Betafolio's view on fees is that they have a real impact on current outcomes that need attention. Um, and that's why we're building a scalable solution with technology that will allow us to keep costs low. And I think we also should consider the impact of these fees on advisors' businesses too. Advisors need to, to make a profit from, from their work. They need to have a viable business and their cost bases have been rising because of regulation and the the more cost they have to pass through to their clients for overcomplicated services in in turn puts pressure on the advisor's own fees and and ultimately makes it not possible for them to to run a, a good business so fees are really crucial um and I'm really happy that we're in a position to be having a positive influence on the the trends in the market 
fantastic stuff. Thank you, Nikki. So, so the, the, the thing, and I think this is the, the, the biggest flaw in your paper that I found, which is to say, yeah, I was actually quite patronizing about it, Chris. Uh, you know, on Twitter, I said, well, passive investors, index investors only track what the rest of the market do. And so as long as you can make that case, I, you know, we'll come back to, to a separate point about ESG, you know, index funds that are ESG inclined and that actively screen out this, this, this type of, um, you know, companies. But, you know, just take it, past investors follow what the rest of the investors do. We own, uh, you know, 12% of the companies, others, you know, corporations, you know, large sovereign wealth, private equities, they own 88 odd percent of these companies, right? If they make a move away, a mass from, um, um, you know, oil and gas companies, um, you know, companies polluting the planet who aren't doing their bit for the environment, then it follows that the value of these companies will drop. There wouldn't be demand from it for, for them or there'll be less demand for, from them. And therefore, you know, index investors would, they would make a, a far less bigger, sorry, a far less uh, proportion of, you know, the, the capital markets. And therefore, index investors, by definition, we allocate less to them. Some of them might even drop out of the index because they, they become um, smaller. So I don't get how you you make that conclusion that we're going to be the, um, you know, owners of last resort for com companies polluting the earth just because we're following what other investors do. Um, so if I understand you correctly, uh, one of your arguments is that um, you're just following the rest of the market. Um, am I right in thinking that the other argument of yours is that um, divestment in secondary equity markets is itself not enough to discourage dirty behavior by firms? Or no, 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 I, I, yeah, no, I'm not making that point, no. Okay, okay. Um, so I guess the, the real issue is that um, it's not quite so much following the rest, the active market per se, as index funds are following the index, um, which whose construction can in many cases be quite opaque um, especially when it comes to the more niche thematic um, ESG related indices, for example. So, I mean, maybe in the case of just like the S&P 500 or the FTSE 100, that is just determined by, um, that is a, a, a clean uh, translation of what the rest of the active market is doing. Um, but in the, in the case of other indices, it's, it's not. And I think that then raises another very interesting question about how much of um, the decision-making power uh, regarding like capital allocation within the economy is being delegated by these passive funds to the index providers who are themselves uh, uh, an opaque and very, very concentrated industry um, who, who 
initially served to merely describe the market, but now have market moving implications themselves. And there's a, a lot of interesting stuff going on around how the margins of index inclusion, uh, whether you're going to drop out of the index or whether you're going to enter into it, um, motivates a lot of very different corporate behavior on the, on the, on, um, on the part of uh, those companies. So, for example, there's one Canadian oil firm that moved to Colorado specifically in order to match a few of the criteria for in, uh, to be included in a corporate bond ET, um, index, for example. Um, or uh, the, the uh, there are studies that find that um, index inclusion encourages firms to issue more bonds, to issue them in greater quantities, like larger bonds, um, and to, for them to have greater maturities. Um, so... Um, in those cases, which is largely to do with, you know, with bonds rather than equities, you can see how in the fossil fuel sector that might um, encourage greater um, investment in carbon assets and like increase the risk of stranded assets and carbon lock-in. Um, and then where was I? The rest of your question was, yeah, are they following the market? I think, um, yeah, there's a great ne there's a greater need for transparency on the part of the indices. Um, and I think it's really threshold effects around the margins of the index that are driving um, a lot of the that that mediate the impacts of index funds on corporate behavior. And there's also the, a question about whether the more passive funds eat up um, the investment market, the more it's diluting the price signals that are being sent by um, the active uh, sector. So maybe you'll reach um, an equilibrium point at which um, there's no, there's only so much more market wisdom left that the that the index funds can sort of um, harness to its own benefit. Uh, I don't know. That's a very speculative um, conclusion, but um, but I guess that would be my answer to your question. Yeah, that that's interesting. I mean, I I guess we agree though that in the main indices, you know, by that I mean the S and P five hundred, the largest index funds, right? Passive investors in the main are following what active investors do. Now, the other sort of cognitive dissonance I see in the paper is that you seem to praise the, or at least imply that they're doing something good, the active funds for, or indicate that they, they've, um, divested to an extent away from fossil fuel companies. Now, bearing in mind, right, bear, just one anecdote, bearing in mind that this research only went up to the end of last year, where everybody, everybody was uh, going, there was ESG craze, um, you know, Tesla shot up <laughs> massively during that period of time, and fossil fuel companies were massively penalized. I think that tide is shifted quite a bit now, you know, like, um, um, you know, fossil fuel companies are declaring, you know, insane amounts of profits and all that stuff. So I wondered if, I mean, I guess your trend shows a downward trend, you know, so I guess in your defense, that's right. But, let you know, let's, let's just take that point um, on that basis. The point I was going to make is that in the main index, in, in indices, uh, you know, the, the largest index fund, we agree that 
um, for the most part, you know, index investors are just following what active investors do, right? This this issue about lack of transparency um, for the smaller indices, you know, or the more call it, you know, the 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 you know less popular indices, especially indices that you know, as you you know, indices that are trying to wait to away from um, you know ESG indices. Let's call them that, right? So you know there are ESG index tracking funds in, in major, you know, in all major equity classes, you know, the UK, the FTSE all share uh, ESG ind indices, there are the same for the US. And the case, the point you made in the paper is that, um, uh, you know, it's, it's opaque um, how they're making these decisions and often, often the decisions are conflicting. So one index providers provider might say that a company has a high ESG rating and include it in the index. Uh, index. Another might uh, remove it. But isn't that the nature of what passive, what active investors would do anyway? So in other words, the decision is still very much um, you know, led b b by the manager. So I don't see why it's a problem for, you know, for index investors, but not a pro problem for, um, you know, active funds. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's true in that um, I don't think the, the problems that we've identified with ESG per se are a differentiating point between passive and active funds uh, more generally. Um Although if um, ESG ratings are going to be, if it's the thing that determines index inclusion, then um, investors who are putting their uh, funds in passive ETFs might then um, be encouraged to shop around as well. Um, and, and in a way that is less opaque because they're also, they're just seeing um, something that has a particular ESG rating and that has a particular return and thinking that they're sort of, getting their money in a way that satisfies their their social environmental preferences as well. And there might be opacity around that. But that's, yeah, that's not a point that we're making um, against um, passive investment per se. Um, I think a lot of the problems that we're raising are really to do with the question of um, to what extent, when it comes to questions, particularly to do with decarbonisation, but also to do with larger um, structural, social questions and political questions. Um, how much can you really rely upon um, uh, private finance to simply tilt its investment in the way that you want by trying to sort of engineer some harmonization between uh, your social metrics and your your economic metrics? Because ultimately, money talks. It's the <laughs> the reason passive investing is growing is because it delivers. You know, it's 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 a it's great for investors. Um, uh, you know, it harnesses market wisdom and at a very low price. Um, part of the reason we're flagging this is we're saying um, here is a really compelling economic logic that is also not delivering upon the social promises that that we're kind of been sold. We're being told that it might deliver. Therefore, um, 
I mean, we ultimately make the case for larger public um, investment to like steer the carbon transition rather than sort of uh, tilting the incentives of private investors. Um, I think just to go back to what you were saying about um, passive funds following active funds, one thing I forgot to say is that intuitively that makes a lot of sense. Like the logic there is, it makes a lot of sense, but for whatever reason, it doesn't show in the data. Um, so I think there has to be some sort of explanation for that. Um, and maybe eventually five years down the line, the trading that the active traders are doing, uh, active investors are doing will feed through, through the index, through to the pa passive portfolios in a way that makes them follow it back down. But I, do, uh, it's not showing yet. Although I agree with you that it will be very interesting to see, uh, Q1 ownership, uh, in response to like, um, yeah, we'll have to update that. <laughs> Yes, yes. So, 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 what is the solution to this? You know, I had, I guess you said, you know, public sector investment to steer this. I mean, how how does that work in your view? Um, in terms, well, and basically, the the risk return profile of particular investments, whether it be in certain energy sources or any of the other economic operations that are adjacent to that or downstream from that, um, the risk return is, is really structured by the um, what the infrastructure actually what infrastructure actually exists. Um, so any any attempt to sort of uh, give a little bit of a discount or like an ESG rating for something that's marginally better environmentally is still going to have a very marginal impact on the sort of um, preferability of those projects to investors um, who are still going to be motivated by the entirely understandable motive of delivering their fiduciary responsibility. What the state is capable of doing is it's capable of, of using its greater risk profile, risk capacity, its fundamentally different risk profile in order to engage in like really big strategic projects. So, you know, if it were to build out I don't know, a national grid uh, that was better electrified or something like that, that would then the effects of that would ripple out through the risk return profile um, of all of the other surrounding projects that investors are then being asked to invest in. Um, and this is this is a large part of, um, uh, not in the investment sphere, but Mariana Mazzucato, the economist, talks about the entrepreneurial state in which it's capable of um, basically like these game-changing um, interventions um, that that I think you can't really rely at the margin on individual investors, even if it's a big investor like BlackRock um, to deliver. And there are other, um, so Eric Lonergan and Corinne Sawyers have their book uh, called Supercharge Me, which is about um, deliver ways of securing um, uh, faster transformations in the finance sector's uh, attitude towards carbon. And they talk about something they refer to as EPICS, uh, which stands for Extreme Positive Incentive Change. And their whole point rests on the idea that um, the incentives that you offer to people and to businesses um, have to be extreme in magnitude because that's the way you shift like the whole behavior onto a new equilibrium. And the positive aspect also means that you shouldn't just punish people. You should make things really attractive. Um, and I think so. I think there is a role for the state in both two of those two dimensions. Um, the other thick point that's worth making, I think, is that the state does very indirectly intervene already in that it provides a backstop to um, the investment uh, activity of the private financial sector anyway. Um, and Larry Fink at BlackRock has made this more or less explicit um, already. Uh, 
when he's basically said that we're going to mobilize the capital for these uh, decarbonization projects, but you have to uh, backstop the risk of it. So essentially, the state is de-risking, using its own balance sheet to de-risk private sector balance sheets in order to mobilize private capital. But that's a very circuitous way of (laughs) mobilizing this capital. I mean, it's very dancing on the head of a pin. Um, And uh, the economist Daniela Gabor has made a lot of... um, has written a lot about this, about uh, the state as de-risking uh, for private finance. Uh, she refers to it as the Wall Street consensus as opposed to the Washington consensus. Um, yeah, so I, I, I really think, um, given that like this investment is already happening in this very stealthy, uh, indirect and ineffe- ineffective and inefficient ways, you might as well just uh, <laughs> drop the act and intervene more directly. Um, ah. Uh, strangely, I, I tend to agree. I've always thought that, uh, you know, this idea of putting the onus on individual investors and indeed, you know, you know, index or passive investors to lead the charge towards decarbonization is a little bit too much to put on the, you know, on the um, on, on the individual. Given given that there are also still a lot of there, there are things we know of, right? You know, there are things that we know um, about, you know, about you know the, the movement towards the decarbonization, you know, and that's fine. But there are things that we're still not sure of, right? Let, should I? I'll give you an example. Let's say that you want to rate. Uh, car manufacturers um, on their ESG profile, for instance, you know, and you would say, well, Tesla's right up there in terms of, uh, you know, decarbonization, less carbon and all that stuff. Great. I I tend to agree, you know, but then where would you put Mercedes? That is, you know, yes, they, they are produced, they produced and still are producing a lot of, um, you know, petrol cars, uh, you know, um, you know, fossil fuel vehicles, but actually they've done an incredible job in releasing electric cars very, very quickly. And so, you know, and you might argue, I don't know. I mean, we don't know where the market's going to end that actually, um, you know, Mercedes drivers are, you know, are waiting for more of these cars and the more Mercedes is, is likely to, is able to release, the faster the shift is likely to be versus, um, you know, what Tesla's doing. I don't know the answer to that, right? You know, so my point is, well, would I exclude Mercedes from my, uh, you know, my portfolio? Would, would I underweight them? Or, or would I actually say, well, you know, broadly speaking, it seems like they're going in the right direction. You know, and they're likely to make um, an, an, an almost dent in that equation. So my point is that there, you know, to put all this the onus on, uh, or you know, a lot of the onus on the an individual investors or indeed corporations. Sorry, sorry, indeed asset managers to make these decisions on behalf of the investor. It's, it's a little bit too much. So I, I'm glad to see some of the proposals you, you're making um, about, uh, you know, how the state might, uh, or, the, you know, the state might take, um, 
the lead in, in, in doing that. Do you have any thoughts on, on, on my comment uh, on that? No? Yeah, yeah, no, I, th I think that makes perfect sense. I think, um, I mean, to, to extend the analogy even further, um, uh, I mean, beyond the, if we're looking at consumers rather than investors, for example, um, and uh, yeah, if I, if I have a car that I'm trying to, um, and I want to decut, I want to reduce my footprint or whatever, um, maybe I need a car anyway, because there's no public transport in my house. And so public transport is something, you know, if there's a train right next to my house, then um, that mass radically changes my uh, option set. Um, and, and if, if, you know, it's going to be really expensive for me to buy a Tesla or like an electric Mercedes or something. But if I can just um, complete, if, if my consumption is, is taking place within like a radically different set of options, then that's something that, um, that can massively shift individual behaviors in a way that is not marginal and doesn't place a huge onus upon us, uh, whether we're individual, whether we're consumers or investors. Um, so I think, yeah, that, um, that's something that only, only the state can lead on. Brings me to, uh, you know, one of my final questions around this to say, would you say, is there a way to quantify um, um, what is likely as as an end investor and consumer, right? Is there a way to quantify what is likely to make the biggest change or move the biggest move the needle the most towards decarbonization? Is it my consumption first and foremost, or? you know, how I tweak my investment. And I, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I tell you why I ask this question, you know, imagine Mr. and Mrs., they drive in in the gas-guzzling uh, vehicle, uh, you know, <laughs> Range Rover, right? And they walk in and they say, can you tweak our, we want ESG investment. Oh, by the way, we want the, return, the, the same return as we would have got if, you know, with our normal investment. And, and my, my, you know, approach to this question is to look out of the window to say, well, first of all, start with your consumption, move to electric vehicles or, or these things before you start to make this kind of, you know, changes to, to your investment. Now, I know it's not, it's not neither nor, right? It's not a question of this or that. But it, do we know, do we have a way to quantify which is likely to make the biggest impact um, on, on, on decarbonization? Um, are both of these options at the individual level? So it's investment versus consumption. Um, yes. Okay, well, I, mean, I don't know how to quantify that. That's beyond me. Maybe there's uh, some, uh, some academic in a lab somewhere. But um, it is interesting because on the one hand, uh, because savings and wealth are more concentrated, um, it means you have a smaller number of people whose actions you need to uh, influence. So, in that sense, maybe maybe investment your your, your investment decisions are more important as um, uh, at the margin. But at the same time, the the chain of financial intermediation um, contains at every link a set of obligations and claims. So, you know, whoever's money managing your money has to be. Um, has a fiduciary responsibility to you where the if that's your your pension fund manager then 
then they have to get the best returns. Um, and you may express certain social preferences, but um, it's difficult to scale that across lots of people. Um, and ultimately, if you're justifying your employability by your performance, it's going to be a hard sell to say, okay, I got a worse return, but I satisfied the subjective preferences of my clients slightly better um, than other managers may have done. Um, I mean, that's part of the reason like, why there's a bit of a pushback against ESG within the financial community, not because it's um, they object to the political content so much as because it muddies the waters like by the metrics against which they're supposed to be held accountable. So, so is the answer to that that we just find a way to measure all, not just the, you know, the, the financial returns, we find a way to measure... Um, you know, the, the carbon content of your portfolio. We find a way to measure the social impact of your portfolio. And we express that as a dimension of the return, not just the financial. I mean, potentially, but the question is how many, um, <laughs> how many people are allocating on that basis? And um, when push comes to the shove, if you're in a, if you're in a, a trying economic environment, um, there's going to be a lot of, uh, I mean, you know, We'd all like to imagine that we're very socially conscious in, it, in investment, but um, you know, when push comes to the shove, maybe you've just got to move your money elsewhere. Um, and that's why I think relying upon the individual to do that um, is, um, is, is, is misleading uh, and misguided, maybe. That, that's interesting. I, I was reading a book about this, uh, about ESG generally, and one of the points they made in the book is, you know, is ESG a luxury good? Right, one that we're likely to buy and be willing to pay for. ESG investing, sorry, you know, that we're likely to pay for. We're likely to, in quotes, sacrifice a degree of return in good uh, times, in good market conditions, but maybe not so much, uh, you know, in a, in a market downturn or, or in straight economic environments. Look, uh, Chris, you've been incredibly valuable. Um, and you've given us, uh, given me and I hope our audience a lot to think about. One final question for you. So that question, I asked it at individual level, individual client level. But suppose you're advising governments or, or companies around incentives, you know, which is likely to make the biggest difference. Is it a cons consumption or investment? At the government level, investment, definitely. Right. Okay. At company level? Um, company level, it's still, well, I mean, yeah, they're, they're doing, um, their investment plans are what their main operations are. So I guess um, uh, the, the non-financial corporation is going to have to lean towards uh, greener methods of investment. Um, but again, I think um, it's, it's the government that really frames that decision set uh, through their own investment. Um, so like key items of energy infrastructure, or, or general transport infrastructure is going to be what determines whether companies can invest in a way that is green or not. Um, so you know, you start with the biggest, with the biggest organisations and um, and who the least constrained organisations, um, and hope that they uh, their decisions flow through to um, to the decision sets of the other. So passive investors can rest easy for now. Um, yeah, I guess. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, if there's another downturn, we'll have to see whether um, um, uh, their performance um, outperforms the active if it's, if it's a very general downturn. Uh, so who knows? Who knows what's going to happen? Um, yeah, we'll, we'll be looking closely at that. We, we manage, you know, a, a billion pounds in, in index, you know, index 
strategies for, for our clients, about a third of that is actually in, um, you know, in ESG type uh, portfolios, um, which as in the, in the recent time performed better than, I say recent time, the last, you know, couple of years done better than, you know, the, the, the traditional, um, you know, diversified portfolio. But it would be interesting to see. It seems like it looks like at the time of recording, we're heading into some sort of downturn in, in the capital market, although I don't know if that's the case, but, you know, <laughs> who knows? We'll see. We'll see. Hey, Chris, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for your, uh, your, your wisdom. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. I'll be remiss if I don't thank my incredible team who worked very hard to put this program together. Thank you, thank you very much guys. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Timeline App, the retirement planning software, and Bitfolio, the high-tech, low-cost, flat-fee model portfolio manager. And to you, our listeners, thank you for your time. I hope you've had as much fun listening to the program as we have making it. You can find more about the show at retirementals.co.uk and you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is Abraham on Money. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.